With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 172. It's titled, Should You Freeze Your Credit? About a week ago, I got an email from Tom. He's a longtime listener of the show and a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. He wrote, in today's world, the sad reality is, is just as we manage things like security risk through diversification, we must manage the risk created by hackers or identity thieves. I view this simply as another risk to be managed by anyone with assets worth hacking. Like most ideas, a personal experience prompted this one. Someone filed a tax return using my name and social security number. Fortunately, the IRS caught it, but it proved to be quite a hassle. Three days after I got that email from Tom, one of the three major U.S. credit reporting agencies, Equifax, announced what has to be the largest data breach in U.S. history. How many consumers were impacted? 143 million. Can you imagine that? 43% of the U.S. My son, he called me up a few days later and he says, what's the chance that I am impacted? by this credit breach? That's at 43%. And what was lost? Names, social security numbers, birth dates, addresses, in some cases, driver's license numbers, credit card numbers of approximately 209,000 U.S. consumers. It's absolutely amazing. But it's not the first time. 2015, Experian disclosed that they had their systems had been hacked, 15 million social security numbers. This is for individuals who had applied for financing through T-Mobile. 2013, Equifax, TransUnion said hackers stole credit or celebrity credit reports. Target, 2013 holiday season. 40 million credit and debit cards of shoppers were stolen. Have you been a victim uh, of one of these breaches? I have numerous times. So many that I couldn't even remember. First time, I do remember. You always remember your first time. June 2007, I get a letter from the state of Ohio saying my data probably had been stolen. They had a tape that was stolen out of an intern's car, a backup tape. So they sent this, what, 10 years ago. Guess they had backup tapes for tax data in the back of an intern's car. That was a regular common practice, apparently, to take tapes home for safekeeping. So that was the first time I, I was signed up for a credit monitoring service because my data had been hacked. Now, nothing came of it. But that was the first time. 
my name and social security number was, was out there in the hands of criminals. A year or so later, the police show up at our door. I wasn't home. Woke Laprell up. It was early, early morning. And he was just checking on her because somebody had called the police. They'd gotten an email that we were stranded, Laprell and I, in Europe, had a serious medical condition, didn't have any money because our money had been stolen, and that we needed our friends on Laprell's hacked Yahoo email account to wire some money to save us from our plight. In 2013, a different type of identity theft, or at least data breach, we were traveling in Europe. My son left his backpack unattended for a little bit. He forgot. And we saw it on the security camera. A, a trucker at a truck stop picked up the bag. We lost a laptop, an iPad camera, but hardware with sensitive data on it. 2015, my insurer, my health insurer, Anthem Blue Cross, announced 80 million members' information, names, birth dates, social security number. Again, my data gone out there. 2015, I'm in Brooklyn. I'm using my debit card. My number gets stolen and I get signed up for some subscription service. I don't remember what it was. I called the bank and they were able to reverse it. But this happened and it, it brought up the question, how much data has been stolen? So I looked it up. The Identity Theft Resource Center, they, do, they, they track security breaches. They've been doing it since 2005. The number of breaches, this is, so this is from January 1st, 2005 through September 5th, 2017. So it doesn't include the Equifax data. It's released every, every week. And I guess we'll see the new numbers later today. But through last week, the number of breaches, 7,873. How many records? 907 million records out there are out there. So many. I mean, it's amazing. And, and things that they track are social security numbers, credit and debit card numbers, email passwords, protected health information, driver's license. It's incredible what's going on. The 2017 Javelin Identity Fraud Report. So they do this once a year. Javelin's a research outfit. They, they, overtook their, they took this over from, I believe, the Federal Trade Commission in 2003. In three. So they've been doing this report based on a survey of 5,028 adults. Now, these aren't data breaches. This is actual fraud where money was stolen. And in 2017, the study estimates 6.15% of U.S. consumers were impacted by fraud. That's up from 5.3% in 2015. Two million more victims. The thieves stole $16 billion, and, and they classify the different types. Here's a type of fraud that's up 40% year over year, card not present fraud. Basically, that's where they, because of, they steal credit card numbers to buy things. I mean, that's what it is. The card's not present. Online purchases 
to buy thing, up 40% in 2016. Al Pasquale, he's the research director and head of fraud and security at Javelin Strategy and Research. He said the criminals are getting better at committing this fraud, this, this card not present. And the reason is more and more credit cards have EMV chips, they're chip-based, and so it's hard, essentially impossible to counter to counterfeit those. Another type of fraud is, is new account fraud. That that doubled last year. That's where criminals open a new credit card account using your name. They just simply buy stolen information. So your date of birth, your mother's maiden name, social security number. Another type of fraud is account takeover fraud. That's where they use your stolen information to access your account. It could be your bank information or they could have a new card sent sent to them. So the, this account takeover fraud last year was up 61%, $2.3 billion stolen. Another type of fraud, I hadn't even heard of this fraud, mobile phone hijacking. So thieves go to the store or they call online, they have a new phone and they convince AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon, to, to transfer the phone. They, they impersonate you, and then they can take over their phone. And why would they do that? Well, then they can intercept email, text messages, oftentimes, particularly for bank accounts, if you have or other secure accounts, double authentication, where they text you a code to verify that, they, they, they can take over your bank account. Here's, here's an article that Tom sent me. I didn't even, this, this absolutely dumbfounded me. It was a New York Times article from August 2017. This is mobile phone hacking. In this case, they're targeting individuals in the Bitcoin community and, and taking over their mobile phone number and then accessing their Bitcoin that is stored on wallets on their phone. Joby Weeks it uh, identifies him as a Bitcoin entrepreneur, says everybody I know in the cryptocurrency space has gotten their phone number stolen. Weeks lost his phone number and a million dollars worth of virtual currency late last year. Last week, I was visiting with the branch manager at the bank where I host my business accounts. And I asked her, how often are people stealing, like breaking in to people's online bank account and stealing money. Because I've heard it, it's happening quite frequently, but she says it, in her case, in her branch, she's been there two and a half years. It's only happened once. It was a couple from California. So it wasn't even anyone locally. But she was she was actually more worried about debit card fraud, particularly something I, I'd never heard of either. Thermal imaging. Apparently, when, when you use your, put in your, pin at an ATM, particularly if it's plastic keys or rubber keys, there's a heat signature that's left. And somebody can come right after you with their phone or some other device, and they can see where there are some heat signatures and see where you pressed, and they can steal your pin. And then if they can get the ATM card or or some other way of getting it, they can steal your money. Now, the, the way to protect against that from what I saw on the internet is you actually put your 
I guess when you're putting in your, your pin, make sure your fingers touch a bunch of different keys or are resting on the keys. And so then there'll be a heat signature on all the keys. But that's what this branch manager was worried about. The American Bankers Association does a deposit account fraud survey every two years. So they'll be doing another one this year. So this is data from 2014, $1.9 billion in losses, but 66% were debit card fraud. So PIN or an ATM combined, some something related to debit card, or like in my case in Brooklyn, my debit card number was stolen by a sniffer embedded into the ATM. So I stuck my card in and there was some a malware in, on the ATM that stole the number. And so $1.9 billion in losses, 66% debit card, 32% was check fraud, and only 2% was attributed to online banking electronic transactions, such as wires or ACH, somewhere where they're, they're compromising the password or there's some type of wire fraud. So what do we do? Well, I'm convinced that if your data has not been compromised, it will. There's just so much data out there. And it I was thinking of a metaphor. It reminded me in 2003, one of my former partners, I was in Seattle and a partner called on my cell phone and we got into conversation and we got to talking about spam, which was still fairly new where there were they're not there weren't not very good spam filters and we would get all of the this email from really trashy websites and I, re, I remember this partner was thinking it was something he had done that that somehow he individually was was attracting this type of attention but it just became overwhelming until spam filters got better we're seeing the same thing with mobile phones. There, there is software out there that can mimic any mobile phone number. And maybe you've been, been caught up in this. Somebody rings you from a, a mobile phone number that looks really close to, to your number. Maybe the area code and the first three digits are the same. And you pick up and it's some recording about winning a trip to Orlando. And it's gotten so rapid. I got two calls yesterday from fake calls. I don't pick up anymore. So we, we learn to adapt. And in terms of data breaches, identity fraud, we just have to learn to adapt. Your data will more than likely be compromised. And there's so much data out there. I was, one of my questions, well, what's this data even worth? And I found a site Logdog, who I'd not heard of. They're an identity theft app. There, there's an underground economy where you can buy stolen data, stolen email accounts, stolen social security numbers, identity inf- or information to get for social media profiles, dating sites. Kind of amazing. This is what's interesting. So the credentials for a dating site on the black market is worth more than a social security number. eHarmony login credentials, $10. That's what it's worth. This is, I think this is 2016 data. A credit card number or a social security number, it's only worth a dollar. Amazon credentials, 70 cents. 
PayPal credentials are worth from a dollar to to eighty dollars. And so, what's interesting is as more and more data gets out there, that it's actually worth less just because of sheer supply versus demand. So what are some of the things you can do to protect yourself? Well, first use a password manager like LastPass, 1Password, Dashlane. I admit, I only started using one of these about a year ago. My sister-in-law convinced me to start. Now, I didn't feel as bad about that after reading that Lori Cranor, who was formerly the chief technologist at the Federal Trade Commission. Their job is to protect consumers from online crimes. She just started using one of these password managers in, in late 2016. She said, I've been advocating password managers for years, but I never actually tried one. Lujo Bauer, he's a security researcher and associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University, says password managers are not a magic pill. But for most users, they'll offer a much better combination of security and convenience than they have without them. Everyone should be using one. This is from a Consumer Reports article. And I'll link to this article as well as others that I've mentioned in the episode and you can get that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Or if you're a member of my free weekly insider's guide, you will have gotten those show notes along with really the best writing I do each week. I write an essay each week, something along the topic of that week's episode, but it's not exactly the same. It's different, and it only goes to members on that email list. So sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Or as a U.S.-based listener, you can text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. But these password managers, they use what's called ES-256 encryption. This is the same sort of encryption that the federal government uses to protect classified information. And so it's, it's well tested and your passwords are often stored by, by these password managers, either on your computer or in the cloud. But it's, it's another level uh, of protection. So you're not using, like I did for many years, the same password for, for everything because you didn't feel like writing it down or memorizing it. But now I use a password manager. Another thing you can do is what I did just yesterday. I called up, well, I actually went online to my phone company for my mobile phone and I put extra security, an extra password or passcode on there. So somebody, if they go into the store, or they, they call up AT&T and try to impersonate me to steal my phone number, then they have to provide an extra passcode that only I remember. But there's a trade-off. There's a trade-off between convenience and security. I mentioned I was at the bank speaking with the banker. I didn't want to be there. In fact, I'd been there three times already that week. Because that bank won't let me send a wire. I needed to wire some money out. They only let me do it in person. Not even at the window. I have to talk to a banker. They call them the bankers. I mean, they're the branch manager. But you have to talk to the banker in order to wire money. Now, I can tell you this bank probably has very little wire fraud because you have to show up in person in order to wire money. 
Now, I only use this bank because I can't get an online business account. For my for our household account, we use an online bank. In that case, they just text me. I, I do my wire online. They text me a confirmation thing, number, and then I can get my wires sent out. But again, if somebody stole my phone, then they could intercept. And if they had the password to, to my bank account, then they could steal my money. But again, the, the, the incidence of that happening is actually much less than debit card fraud or other fraud related to your data being compromised or breached by a credit reporting agency or a retailer. That's where most of the fraud is occurring, That where you don't have control of that. There's things you can do on your own, but if some entity loses your social security number or your other information, you're exposed. Somebody could open up an account in your name. Somebody could take over one of your accounts. And so that, that, that's the risk. And so that's why I, I, I did probably the most extreme thing you can do. I mean, if, if somebody actually steals, opens an account in your name, you could put a fraud alert on your, in fact, you call up one of the credit reporting agencies and by law, they have to put, they have to contact the other two agencies and there's a fraud alert on your account. It's good for 90 days. And so if, and there's any suspicious activity or additional activity, you're notified and they're notified. So that's one thing you can do if there has been fraud, but you have to renew that every 90 days. You can have a credit monitoring service, pay 10 to $30 and, and they'll monitor for any suspicious activity on your account, that's 10 to $30 a month. But I went all in so that you look at the title of today's episode. Should you consider a credit freeze? And that's what I did. A credit freeze prevents a new creditor from getting access to your credit report. So if somebody's trying to open an account in your name, a new credit card, for example, the credit card company can't get access to your credit report. And so they're not going to issue credit in your name. Now, there's some drawbacks because it's not just credit card companies that might be accessing your credit. If you're renting a new apartment or if you're setting up phone or electrical service, sometimes employers will run a credit check. But once it's set up, it's frozen and you do it individually with each company, you can freeze and unfreeze your credit. But sometimes there's a delay uh, of several days, which in some regards is a a discipline because it, it, it gives you control. But there is a level uh, of inconvenience, but it gives you that protection. It was really easy to do. I was surprised. I, you, I went online to Equifax. I didn't even check Equifax to see if my data was compromised. I just assumed it was. So I went right to credit freeze on Equifax about five minutes, maybe 10 minutes. Did the same thing with Experian. Took just a few minutes. They charge $6. And the fee depends based on what state you live in, but sometimes there's a modest fee. TransUnion was also free to set up. And, and that way I'm protected. I'm not planning on borrowing any money or renting an apartment. So I, I have some 
additional protection there. And I think that that's that's a good thing. Now, four states remove your credit freeze automatically after seven years. That's Kentucky, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, and South Dakota. But the rest of them don't. And this doesn't impact your credit score. All the research I did says this doesn't impact your credit score. So your existing creditors can continue to report your pay history. And so it doesn't impact your credit score, but it it does protect you because your credit is frozen. Nobody can access that credit report and and open up account. I think that's a better better thing to do than, I mean, I guess you could do credit monitoring, but I, I'm kind of cheap. I don't want to pay for it. Now, Equifax will pay for credit monitoring for the next year if I sign up. And so you'll, you'll have that. Usually when there's a data breach, that's what they provide you, the credit monitoring type service. If you're a victim of identity theft in the U.S., the U.S. government has a very, very helpful website with steps you can take. You can go to identitytheft.gov and it'll walk you through all the steps depending on the type of identity theft that occurred, whether it was a credit card, social security number, or things like that. So that's identitytheft.gov. So that's this week's episode. I would assume that your data has been breached and so you have to protect yourself. I've elected to do a credit freeze, but you can do credit monitoring. But there's a trade-off. How much inconvenience do you want to have? In my case, for example, for my banks, I don't have double authentication. And so they're not texting me a code in order for me to log on to my bank. Because if I do that, then services that I use, such as Mint or QuickBooks, they don't work if you have to get sent a code every time you log on. So I've elected convenience there willing to take the risk because most of the bank fraud has been related to wire fraud or debit accounts being being compromised. It's not been necessarily stolen password, but that, there's a risk. But when it happens, and I, I talked to my bank about this, what happens when that, that somebody does steal your money from the bank and, and you get the, their fraud department will research it, but generally speaking, you'll get the money back in, and so you're protected that way. So it ends up just being a major inconvenience if you're a victim of identity fraud. And so the level of protection you want to do kind of depends on how much inconvenience you want to give up now in terms of accessing your accounts versus later sort of sorting out the whole mess when it does occur. Everything I've shared with you in this week's episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.